I'm Yash Pavlik-Slank, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Our guest today is Cynthia Shee, climate change activist and director of knowledge at McKinsey.org but you might know her better by her stage name, Vienna Tang. As a professional musician, Cynthia toured the globe. She's played more than a thousand concerts. She was a guest on Letterman and appeared on NPR. Your body feels the talk, talk, talk of time as it happens. Lord, we are the song we're listening to, Level Up, came out on her fifth studio album, Ames, back in 2013. The lyrics are a call to action. Don't let your fears keep you from doing what your conscience tells you is right. Cynthia says she was speaking to herself as much as anyone. I realized that I want to be part of a community of people who are committed to solving climate change, even if they don't know whether it can be solved. When she wrote those lyrics, she had just answered the knocking that she felt in her own heart to pursue a purpose-driven career. So she ditched the tour bus and tackled a dual master's degree, an MBA and a master's of environmental science at the University of Michigan. And she thinks that there's more than one way to fight climate change. It doesn't just come from the world of business or from people taking to the streets or from songwriting. It's not um, either or. I feel like it's both and. My quest is to really kind of continue to figure out the both and. And where do I sit in contributing to the common cause of making the world better? We'll hear how being a musician and a management consultant gives Cynthia a unique perspective on the world's problems, the pros and cons of feeling like an outsider, and why her colleagues call her the Cynthiasizer, all in this episode of Degrees. Cynthia Shee, welcome to Degrees. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Cynthia, McKinsey.org was founded pretty recently, uh, back in 2018, to explore the challenge of how cities mitigate and manage waste. Of all of the environmental challenges that such a huge global consulting firm could take on, why did you decide to tackle waste? Yeah, so McKinsey.org was founded with a sort of broad mission of solving complex social challenges. And waste felt like it was a really interesting problem in that sense, that it sat right at this intersection of all these different issues that felt really important and timely and urgent. You know, plastics in the ocean and the overflowing landfills and trying to figure out how to rescue materials from the waste stream. But at the same time, there are all these links to climate change, there's links to ocean health, there's links to just kind of questioning how we're actually consuming resources as a society and like how do we actually move to a different paradigm. And it touched all these different stakeholders as well, from the informal sector all the way to multinational you know, consumer goods companies to oil and gas and chemicals companies to local governments and national governments. So it was just a really rich problem that we felt like was really interesting to work on. 
it's an almost overwhelming problem, right? For all the reasons you just mentioned, how can you possibly tackle that big of a problem? How do you even start to organize it and take action? It's a great question. And what we've found really useful is to identify a theory of change, identify what are some of the targeted interventions that we feel like can have a cascading outsized effect. So obviously some of the fundamental root cause of a lot of waste issues is how much waste is generated, right? Like how wasteful are we (laughs) in the ways that we produce goods, the way that we consume them. So that's the way that we think about it is that you have to start somewhere. And the place that we realized we could start is recycling, which interestingly enough is maybe one of the less sexy places to start because (laughs) I think immediately people think recycling, oh, that's from like the 70s, right? We've been doing it for ages. Like, isn't it kind of, haven't we been there, done that, or like figured out that it doesn't work? And what we find really exciting is figuring out what does recycling in the 20th, 21st century look like? What does it mean to design recycling systems for transitioning to a circular economy? What does it mean to do inclusive recycling so that you're really thinking about the people who are already part of an informal system and bring them and and raise them up and celebrate the work that they're doing and integrate it into what the future looks like? I want to come back to that sort of community-led strategy in a minute. But before we dive into that, I'd love to hear about your role. What's your day-to-day like? So my role in McKinsey.org and Rethinking Recycling has evolved a lot over time. In the beginning, I was basically one of a team of six traveling around the world, just looking at what are some of the examples we can draw inspiration from, what are some of the problems that are common no matter where you go. My role now, which we've sort of defined as director of knowledge, which means that I'm sort of charged with the really fun part of taking a step back and saying, what have we learned? What do we really know? What is... What are we doing that's new? And if we aren't really doing things that are really changing the game, how should we be kind of adjusting course to make sure that we're working on interesting new ideas and taking risks and really kind of pushing the problem solving forward on waste and recycling? So it's a really fun job. Director of Knowledge. You don't hear that title every day. What does it mean to have your job? And and does that title or that function exist other places under a different name? That's a great question. Yeah. And I don't think that my title is a very common one, like you said, (laughs) in different organizations. But we realize that we are fundamentally a experimentation and learning organization. We're trying to figure out what works and then how do we scale it? How do we build partnerships to really bring some of these solutions forward once we have figured out what they are? And we need someone who is kind of holding that knowledge and trying to crystallize it. And so that's where the title Director of Knowledge came from. Recycling and solving the bigger waste issue more generally, I mean, it could probably feel pretty overwhelming to most people trying to tackle it. So you and your colleagues decided to start working on it in two places, Argentina and Indonesia. Why did you start there? In Southeast Asia, the problem of waste flowing into the ocean is really top of mind for governments. And I think there's a sense of, you know, there being kind of all eyes of the globe are on (laughs) Southeast Asia when it comes to the uh, plastics in the ocean problem. And so we feel like when if you can solve it for 
a complex situation like that where there's a country with an archipelago of islands and you know, all these opportunities for waste to leak into the environment, how do you actually put in place systems that are effective at managing that waste but are also respectful and working in tandem with the deep you know, cultural roots and community, the way that communities are organized there. And in Argentina, the system that has grown for recycling around Latin America is really fascinating because through decades of organizing, waste pickers have really earned recognition from governments across South America to be formalized as basically trade unions, as people who have a right to the waste, people who have skills and something to contribute in managing waste and channeling more materials into recycling. And so that creates a different kind of system in which to build solutions. And it's very much one where the worker and the workers' groups are kind of front and center. At the same time, there have been different incentives that have grown up around that, that sometimes are not optimized for making things better in terms of improving recycling. They're very good for improving people's livelihoods, and sometimes there's a tension there. In terms of how we approach the question of working directly with communities, partnering with local stakeholders, and thinking about environmental justice, I'll be totally honest, like we are, I think, very humbly beginning our journey on that. There's a lot where we kind of always come to the table wanting to learn from people who have done more of this before. And one of the ways we've done that is by hiring people into our team who have much deeper roots in community organizing or in working with labor groups or marginalized or migrant workers, for example. And it's really helped us to understand things from a perspective that, frankly, sometimes we forget to take into account or just don't know how to think about. Cynthia, I want to go back a little ways in your career and talk about some of the huge changes you've made. You did your undergrad at Stanford in computer science and then worked in Silicon Valley as a software engineer. But you left just a couple of years later to go on tour as a singer-songwriter. You spent 10 years on tour full-time, and then you decided to go back to school to study business and sustainability. Why? Maybe the answer is that I actually knew, even before I fully embarked on my music career, that I was going to do that. I think I've always felt compelled to figure out how can I be most useful to the world what is the unique gift that I can bring to this? And not only that, what are some of the most important things to work on? And I think that I often struggled to answer that with just one career. And so I realized fairly early on, maybe around junior or senior year of my undergrad time, that it was going to have to be multiple careers. And I would get to choose what those career moves were, but I knew that there would be more than one. I think the first awakening really came right after I graduated um, from Stanford with my computer science degree, and I went to a talk with Amory Lovins, who had just released this book, Natural Capitalism, that he wrote with Paul Hawken and Hunter Lovins. And it was the first time that I really saw someone lay out how you could work on environmental and social issues without carrying a sign in a street you know, and, and shouting through a megaphone, which... I've come to realize it's absolutely necessary, but not really my jam, (laughs) not what (laughs) I am kind of built to do. And the idea that you could work within corporations, that you could work within these big structures that already exist to drive change in the world was really exciting. And not only that, but some of the most creative and necessary solutions would emerge from that space. So here I was with this epiphany. And every year that I progressed in my music career, which was wonderful, it was an amazing life that I wouldn't trade for anything. 
you know, in the tour van or on breaks in the studio, I would just think to myself, like, how much more do I want to run with this? Because I know there's something after this. And so it was just kind of a continual soul searching that I had of when, when is the right time to be this, to be a musician, and when is the right time to move on to something else? And it so happened that for me about seven years in, so it was a long time, <laughs> um, I decided that that was when I should start to, you know, think about making that move. Well, there's tremendous freedom in understanding that it's a long life and there are a lot of careers and opportunities along the way. You don't have to stick with your first choice or the first thing that you do. There are lots of opportunities that you should take advantage of. That's that's very wise for a very young person at the time. I feel like maybe I almost didn't have a choice because I felt like there was not anything I could envision that would really feel satisfying to me. So even though I didn't have the wisdom to know it was possible. I just knew that I was going to have to try it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So brave. Well, when you were out on tour, you saw the effects of climate change firsthand. So bring us to the moment when you realized that I have to do something about this. I think it wasn't even so much a specific place as it was kind of one piece of information after another, kind of adding up to something that I couldn't really look away from anymore. So I think the first revelation was realizing how, you know, dirty it is to travel so much. (laughs) I looked at the carbon footprint of me and my band getting on planes to go to Europe to tour, getting in these diesel vans, selling a lot of physical merchandise, um, all that sort of stuff. Not to mention all the car trips and sometimes plane flights that fans would take to make it to a concert. And I really struggled with that and thought like, well... I feel like I'm doing good by making this music and sharing with people and creating meaning and community around that. But it comes at this cost, this environmental cost. And I started to see that it, was, it wasn't just me thinking about this. My fans were as well. So when I would talk to fans after shows, I'd be standing you know, in line giving autographs and taking you know, selfies and things like that. And occasionally people would tell me a bit about their lives. They said, oh, I'm actually a climate scientist and wow. <laughs> or, you know, I actually work on um, renewable energy policy or, you know, whatever it was. And I would connect with these people through music and ask them, you know, so, so what do you think? They're like, well, it's, um, it's important and not em- enough attention is going to it and we're all going to feel the impacts of it. So, um, so I'm trying to do what I can. And their words, you know, to me saying I'm trying to do what I, what I can really resonated and started to think that, well, maybe this is something that I have to make more important in my life, too. Yeah. So it sounded like all of the 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 stars were aligning. You were reading information. You were taking it personally. You were making connections with fans um, about how important this was to you. What did you do next? I started to figure out how do I build this into the career I already have, the life I already have. So in 2007, I launched what I called the Green Caravan Tour because I had the song called Blue Caravan. And so, you know, I was just trying to do a little play off of that. Perfect. And I was trying to see, like, how green can I make this tour? But I have to confess that ultimately it felt like it wasn't enough. It felt like I was still trying to put Band-Aids on a system that was broken. And I would rather work on fixing that broken system rather than trying to do what I could along the edges. So that's what ultimately led me in around 2009, 2010 to say, I think it's time for me to move into, you know, fixing that system and seeing what I can do to be useful there. ¶¶ 
And it was hard. It was hard to leave behind that music life. And I don't even know if I've fully left it behind at this point. There's always the question of how I integrate them. So that's actually the question I'm grappling with now. How did your fans react? You know, people who didn't know, or your friends or your family, people who didn't know you were on that journey. Seems like a big switch. Yeah, I think it was a big switch. And I was surprised by the range of reactions. My parents, I think, were a little relieved because they always thought that their their kid being a starving musician, driving a car around, be, basically being a CD salesperson, <laughs> um, was not what they envisioned as immigrants trying to build a better life for the next generation. And so they were glad to hear the words grad school in my plans and things like that. <laughs> I think there were definitely fans who were excited that I was joining their cause, those people who had already been at work in fields like that. There were definitely people who were really sad or upset or just didn't kind of understand. And I distinctly remember one club owner who I deeply admired, and he knew that I had decided to go back to grad school. I was going to move away from New York. I was kind of wrapping everything up. And he said, he just shook his head and he said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. He's like, you don't realize what you're walking away from. Clearly something else is more important to you, but I don't get it. And that really stuck with me, and it haunts me. Maybe there is a way, rather than hopping kind of serially from one career to another, that there is a point when they come back together in an integrated way. And again, I'm doing this without knowing if there's an answer. (laughs) Well, I'm eager to follow you on that journey. Now, I want to take us back to 2012, where you gave a TEDx performance at Stanford. And at the time, you were a dual degree program student studying business and sustainability at the University of Michigan. And what you said was that you were actually getting a degree in being bipolar. Because on the one hand, you were spending time at business school where it was all about action and competition and growth and about getting a lot of people together and making things happen really quickly. But then on the other hand, you were also in an environmental school where the rhythm and the thinking was quite different. And it turned out to be really difficult and emotional to study both of these areas at once. Here's what you said about that. And often I come away with the sense that it's too late already. (laughs) You know, that there's so much for us to learn and so much for us to grapple with. And we don't, as a society, actually have the tools yet to kind of turn our ship around. And so I live with these two realities, this, this boundless excitement and also this, um, this really kind of deep depression in some ways. What did you do with those feelings? How did you go forward? I think that ultimately the answer for me was to work on the problem no matter what, to understand that there are these really complex systems that we're only beginning to understand. It may be that our society and our systems for living together as human beings can't solve this. We don't have the tools yet. But as much as we can build those tools before it's too late was what I wanted to work on. And I'm a really unlikely candidate for having ended up at a global management consulting firm. And it was with some surprise and almost reluctance that I realized that 
management consulting was probably the best way to think about and solve problems in a methodical way. And so that's how I ended up at McKinsey as a consultant and did get to work on some clean energy, renewable energy projects. But I still am always holding those things in tension. There are days or moments when I feel like it's too late, we're screwed. (laughs) We're never going to get there. We're never going to figure this out in time. And then there are other times when I feel like, why give up before you've found out what's going to happen? And so I'm always letting myself feel that despair, but then also move towards just doing the work anyway. As a musician, I can imagine that you are a really unique thinker to some of your peers. You bring an outsider's perspective. In fact, I heard that your colleagues gave you a really fun nickname to recognize that. One of my coworkers gave me a wonderful nickname. She called me the synthesizer. <laughs> that I'm good at synthesizing all the inputs that have come into this discussion and kind of tying a neat bow on it of like, here's, here's something that captures the whole discussion and what we should do with it. And so that's kind of the superpower I'm trying to develop. <laughs> and I think I couldn't have done that without having different careers, without working with very different people who see the world in very different ways. I think Synthesizer should be the name of your next album. <laughs> Just putting it out there. I should give my uh, colleague Gwen uh, credit for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm wondering if you can give me an example of an analogy that you made that made a project more successful or made stakeholders come together because you were able to draw that. Mm, that's a great question. So I remember being on the ground at our program in Indonesia, where we're setting up community-led recycling systems that really kind of empower the local community and the workers who are working with waste day in and day out to build sustainable systems that capture waste and send it on to recycling markets where it can be put back into productive use. And we were struggling to tell the story that was compelling to the community leaders and to the workers about why we were suddenly <laughs> like all up in their business trying to tell them to do something differently. And I realized that why they struggled to understand why we were there is that they had other priorities. You know, starting recycling was not high on their list. And so what I realized is that maybe one way to tell that story was with the old uh, stone soup story. <laughs> oh, I love that, that story that you have all these different players in the recycling system who don't really work together and don't really talk. And what we wanted to do was sort of entice people to try one thing together and to work together where they never had before. And once they had gotten the sort of muscle memory of working together, they would realize how much more was possible on all sorts of other fronts. They could solve some of their economic development issues together. They could solve some of the issues of how to create jobs with dignity. They could figure out how to serve women and children who are in need with with new services and things like that. And for, for listeners who haven't heard Stone Soup, essentially somebody has a pot and somebody else has water and somebody else has carrots and someone else has potatoes. And if everybody works together, you can make a really amazing soup. And it all starts with one person bringing what they have to the table to solve a problem or to serve a group. Yeah. And in that stone soup story, it begins with all these different villagers being suspicious of one another and never talking or working together. And it takes these strangers setting up this odd notion of making stone soup that results in all of them sitting in the village square having a meal together and talking to each other and realizing that like, oh, we should actually be a community. (laughs) 
I love that. So when I told that story, I think a lot of people suddenly understood. They're like, I see like, you know, the the power that this can have not only for the specific thing that we're working on, which is sort of the kettle of water with the stones in it, but as each of us kind of brings our own ingredients to it, it becomes something bigger than the whole. Well, it sounds like that was a a strong analogy for that group and probably draws from not only your experience as a professional, but also your experience as a mother. You have a little one at home now. What's her name? Her name's Arcadia, and she's named both for a Tom Stoppard play that my husband and I adore, and uh, also because Arcadia is sort of the name for pastoral utopia. That's perfect. How has becoming a mother changed how you see your dual careers? I think the most blunt answer is that I don't balance it. (laughs) It's really hard. So I actually think back to some advice that I got from my first uh, mentor slash evaluator at McKinsey. I had sat down with him and he said, well, what are you trying to do? Like, what would you like to do? And I gave him this laundry list. I said, well, I'd like to travel less. I'd like to work on sustainability projects. And I'd also like to have more work-life balance. And also I would like to get involved in office initiatives. And he cut me off and said, I can't help you like this. You need to choose a primary axis. Like, tell me what is your primary objective that you are solving for and that you want me to help you solve for. And I can help make that happen. I can't balance all these different priorities for you. You can't do this all at once. So that really stuck with me, and I felt like I've sort of lived my life that way ever since, of being clear about what my primary objective is at any given time and managing the messy (laughs) backlog of all the other priorities as well as I can. Well, I think that's a great point, and that's something I'll take away as a new mom and working professional. You can't do it all. And sometimes the bathroom doesn't get cleaned for a long time, and that's okay. But uh, (laughs) the things that are really important will get done. Absolutely. I love the idea that I don't have to have a clean house. My husband has been trying to tell me that that is the first thing I should let go of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to go back for a minute to the song that opened this conversation, Level Up, which I love. I was really taken with the lyrics, you're done with all the talk, 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 with nothing on the table. It's time to come on out. There will be no sign from above. You'll only hear the knock, knock, knock of your heart as a signal. What was happening in your life when you wrote that song? This is actually a moment of my music life and my life in sustainability really intersected because I remember very clearly why I wrote that song, and it was a climate change seminar that I was taking in grad school. And there was a moment when the professor had kind of taken us through the whole state of climate science, um, you know, accelerating feedback loops that were going to melt the permafrost in the Arctic and all of this stuff. And he sort of paused and said, can I get a show of hands? How many of you think that we're going to make it out of this thing? And nobody raised their hand. And he looked around and he said, if you guys think that we're screwed, like, why are you here? Why are you spending money on graduate school to do some career in sustainability when you think that we're not going to make it? Like, why do you, like, some of you have kids. Like, why do you have kids if you think we're not going to make it? And there was this really awkward silence, right? And I finally raised my hand and I said, I guess because I'd rather be someone working on this than not. And... That evening, I think, or later that week, I started to write the beginnings of the song Level Up and really trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to get up and 
do stuff <laughs> if you don't know whether it's going to work. I realized that I want to be someone who, even if I don't know whether we're going to make it, whether we're going to solve it, that I want to be doing it anyway. And I want to be part of a community of people who are committed to solving climate change, even if they don't know whether it can be solved. Cynthia, many of our listeners are here because they want to use their career and their talents and their time and their energy to make an impact with a purpose-driven career. But let's face it, changing careers can be frightening, to say the least. And it worked out well for you, but it was scary, right? Absolutely. I think another sort of tough voice in my head that I carry around is from my father, who, as I mentioned, is an immigrant and really thinks a lot about how do you create a stable, thriving life for yourself that's secure, that can withstand, you know, shocks to the economic system that, you know, the country you live in, that sort of thing. And so he was always really worried about me being a musician because he said, I don't understand how this leads to what I would want for you. <laughs> but I think that one thing he really did impress on me that I do carry with me is how do I build skills that are transferable? How do I figure out how to tell the story of how they're transferable for myself and then to other people? And how do I use that to sort of be able to move from you know, situation to situation? Even for people who, are, who have more limited options, there are ways to figure out how do I build my skill set in such a way that I may be able to move somewhere that is more aligned with what I really want to do next. For our listeners who maybe aren't as excited as you are and your team is about waste, why should they get excited about the unique approach that you're using and apply it to problems that they are committed to solving? Mm, that's another good one. What I would say is, um, as you're th for anyone who's thinking about, like, how do I have a purpose-driven career or a career focused on social impact, think about the intersection of the problem that you want to work on and also what is an interesting mode for you to work in. If you enjoy being in startups, for example, and that startup energy and wearing all these different hats and it just sort of being kind of messy and fail faster, like if that's the environment you thrive in, what is the role of such a startup kind of organization in the problem that you want to solve? That's a great idea. And if, on the other hand, you really love researching and kind of casting a wide net of what is already known about this, like how do we kind of bring together all of the collective wisdom of what is already happening around the world, that, that kind of almost research position, there's surely a role for that in any problem that you want to solve as well. So I think that one of the best ways I've, in, I've found for figuring out which twist and turn to take in my career is what am I excited to do as kind of the day-to-day -day work? And wh what am I best at? Like, what makes me come to life most? And I guess the good and bad news is that these problems are so vast and complex that there's surely <laughs> a place for any kind of particular set of talents and interests to slot in into a particular way. There are people who love nothing better than to build the financial model for how this is going to work in terms of the economics, and other people who love nothing better than to think of crazy ideas, and other people who just love getting stuff done. They're not idea generators, but they say, like, 
if there's something that we need to do, I can plan it out. I can put the team together. I can make it happen. And it's just a joy to work with people with all these different skill sets, all kind of working, collaborating together. I'm so happy you said that because that is almost our thesis for this podcast. Our theory is that you can have an impact using your career and it doesn't matter what hat you wear. You can wear all different kinds of hats. You don't have to work for a nonprofit or a faith-based organization or city government. You can do anything and, and, and really apply your talents as long as you understand what that sort of North Star is and what skills you bring to the table. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thank you, Cynthia. This was absolutely oh, fantastic. <laughs> what a what a wonderful and inspiring conversation. I'm so glad. <laughs> That's it for our conversation with Cynthia Shee, Director of Knowledge at McKinsey.org. You can rock out to more of her music under her stage name, Vienna Tang. We've put some links in our show notes. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Degrees. We are so grateful that you're here. Please share this podcast with a friend and ask them to subscribe. That's the best way to support our show. And please write a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And follow me on Twitter at Yesh Says. We're online at DegreesPodcast.org. That's DegreesPodcast.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and your questions about the show. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Our producers are Rick Ballou and Amy Morse. Our executive producer is Christina Mestre. And our production company is Podcast Allies with the brilliant Elaine Appleton Grant and Lindsay O'Connor. This episode's assistant producer was Emily Vaughn. Engineering by Matthew Simonson and theme music by the deeply talented Lake Street Dive. Tune in to our next conversation with Boma Brown West, Director of Consumer Health and my colleague at EDF Plus Business, where we'll talk about her personal mission to usher consumer goods into a toxic-free future. I'm your host, Yesh Pavlik-Slank. Stay fired up, y'all. Change.